Welcome to the A Sound Effect podcast, the podcast about sound effects. My name is Ashwin Andersen, and I'm the founder of asoundeffect.com. And I'm Christian Halskjær, founder of Hudsonvit Sound Effects. For this episode, we are getting into a film that I know both Asbjørn and I are big fans of. Jennifer Walden's book to supervising sound designer Mark Mangini and sound designer Theo Green about their sound work on Denis Villeneuve's Dune. So one of the things they get into is how they collaborated with uh, Villeneuve and uh, composer Hans Zimmer from a pretty early stage about the uh, interplay between sound design and music. And there's a slight spoiler alert here. If you're curious about the sounds in the scene where Paul is being tested by the Bene Gesserit, then they talk about that too. As always, we'll also be checking out some of the exciting new releases from the sound effects community. This time we have some cinematic risers, some vintage print shop machines, various vinyl and shellac record sounds, and a nice collection of winds. So uh, let's have a listen. Cinematic Risers by Celine Woodburn features sounds for cinematic trailers made with a hydrophone, a bucket of water, and various metallic objects. Vintage Print Shop by Aeneas Menzel is a pack of recordings of old mechanical printing and folding machines. Records, vinyl, shellac and more by John Silke features scratches, needle drops, crate digging and many other related sounds. Spirit of Sound Effects Winds Volume 1 by Unity Gain Sound is wind sounds mainly from the southwestern part of the US. Next up is an interview with Mark Mangini and Theo Green about their work on Dune. Hey, this is Jennifer Walden here talking with Oscar and MPSE award-winning supervising sound editor Mark Mangini at Formosa Group and MPSE award-winning sound designer Theo Green. So this talented duo have once again collaborated with director Denis Villeneuve, this time for the epic sci-fi staple that is Dune. So Mark and Theo both earned Oscar noms for their work on Villeneuve's previous film, which was Blade Runner 2049. And despite the fact that these two films could be more different, there's an undeniable sonic similarity between the two. This marriage of sound design and music that just blends together so perfectly, it almost feels like Blade Runner 2049 was a stepping stone for what they've achieved on the Dune soundtrack. So Mark, Theo, thank you so much for joining me to have this chat about the sound design on Dune. Um, I love that the sound design is so musical and so much like your approach to Blade Runner 2049. Can you talk about that process of designing sound that works so well with this unique score on Dune? Uh, did you guys have an early collab with composer Hans Zimmer or how did this all come together? Well, we had Denis Villeneuve as a big 
passionate believer in sound design and in the idea of sound design and, and music having kind of coordinated handoffs, um, let's say, rather than everything kind of coming crashing together in a final mix without any planning and to avoid the usual situation of a sound team working very separately from a composer. Denis made sure that Mark and myself were both hearing early ideas from Hans, often instruments and sounds rather than whole cues textures, um, you know, things that would help us get an idea of the sort of tonalities that he would be using in a scene. And likewise, we would regularly send um, examples of something that we thought would be a key sound in a key scene. I'd give the example of Paul and Jessica running away from the sandworm, which is something that occurs towards the end of the movie. We knew that that's going to be a big action moment. We also knew that it's a moment where we're showing something that's important to the story, which is that if you walk on the wrong kind of sand on the planet Arrakis, it booms out. It's called drum sand, and it's like you're running on a drum skin, and that has the effect of attracting the worm and making it go completely berserk. So you don't want to be on drum sand. So Paul and Jessica are running away. The second they step on drum sand, they know they're in trouble and they've got to run. And, you know, we sent early ideas of what that running on drum sand might sound like. And I think perhaps Hans would have maybe usually thought that's the kind of thing he'd be doing a big percussive chase scene kind of cue for but knowing that we were working on those kind of footsteps his score instead of being a big percussive chase actually becomes something which our editor joe walker i've heard him describe as a, a meeting with god it, it's actually a, quite a, a sort of a tender piece that's building up until we finally see the worm rear its head and again instead of it being a monster moment both from us in the sound and from hans in the music it's a sort of a meeting with the god of the planet Arrakis. So yeah, we had these regular sidebars with Hans. And then I would also say that Ron Bartlett, um, who mixes the music, and Doug Hemphill, who mixes uh, the sound effects, have a great deal to do with making sure that those worlds blend together, those handoffs happen in a satisfying way, and that we don't have the problem of a big boom in the sound effects coinciding with a big boom in Hans's percussion. And it's a combination of having enough pre-planning between our departments and um, having wonderful mixers who are expert at knowing what moment to rack focus on, what moment to zero in on an effect and then pull it back and listen to the music. So nice combination of pre-planning and wonderful mixes, I would say, helped us with that. Indeed. There's another great moment of this music and sound design coming together in a much more quiet sort of way. There's this scene in which the Benny Gesserit Reverend Mother tests Paul by making him place his hand inside the box. Yes. What's happening to him is actually just sort of playing out in his performance, and it's accompanied by these high-frequency resonant sounds. Yes. So was that score, or was that score and sound design together? There's a lot of sound design there, and that's actually one of the things that I remember passing to Hans early on. Um, dentist drill like pain mark and i think very method actor like i think we try and imagine what it's like inside the head of someone who's experiencing what a character is going through and that really pulls the audience into the experience of the character that we're watching so yeah paul is experiencing extreme pain that we later find out is is all a, a neurological trick um but yes, we created all kinds of um, painful tones that reminded us of a trip to the dentist and other things that are kind of sizzling. Mark, I think we used some sort of sizzling bacon and stuff like that. Was it, was it bacon? There was bacon, but there's also, I think, another <laughs> effective element were those whips that would bring us into the flashbacks that added uh, accent That's... and kind of punch to the, those those moments. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. As Paul goes deeper into the pain, we, we realized that actually the torture is bringing out 
what Denis described as it's bringing out the Kwisatz Haderach within him, you know, the, the character that the Bene Gesserit have been talking about for, for centuries and trying to have a breeding program to bring about this superhuman individual who can do all of these things that the Bene Gesserit can't do. So we see these kind of psychic flashes, as it were. Paul sees moments of pain that are going to come later in the movie. And yes, as Mark says, we use these kind of whip noises, like I think it was actually like a bungee just kind of spinning and making a like as a, as a way of imagining, you know, we're, we're sort of, his synapses are sort of snapping away and we're experiencing these visions at a breakneck pace as they come upon him. So yeah, there are the flashes, there is the kind of building pain and tension. And then the thing that I love the most, and this is the handoff moment really, where a big brum comes in and we know that something has changed. It's the moment where he catches the eyes and suddenly he's not in pain. He's out of the pain and he's just staring at the Reverend Mother. And you see from behind her veil, she looks at him and there's this wonderful exchange of glances where we know that she's thinking, wait a minute, this isn't just an ordinary human. What's happening here? And that's the moment where Hans Zimmer's score kicks into a different mode. It takes over from the pure pain that we've been describing with sounds. And then we hear the first version of Loire Kotler, who's the vocalist he worked with for those pieces, with this sort of banshee wail theme that really becomes the theme of the Kwisatz Haderach Awakening. That's a lovely example of a handoff between sound and music, I think. It's that moment of change um, within a person. We've been describing pain, and Hans comes in and describes an, an awakening of some dark spirit within. That's uh, an example of something that really worked with the sort of pre-planning and sending each other versions early. There's also Paul's experience of the spice. Um, again, here there's that Benny Gesserit type of experience with the visions and everything like that. So was there any sonic links between that experience that he had with the test and the Reverend Mother and these visions that he has later through the experience with the spice? Yes, I mean, um, we also developed a language as we were going along with Denis Mark, maybe you want to speak to some of the ideas that we developed of the ancient Bene Gesserit spirit that's awakening within him and how he went about recording voice talent. Initially, it was just an idea of it would be an element of the voice, you know, this thing which um, the Bene Gesserit used to command somebody and people are unable to resist the command. Then that developed into something else. Mark, do you want to, do you want to go into that? Um, it, it starts with our developmental work on the voice itself, um, which... Uh, brought about a very useful narrative tool as we tried to figure out how would Paul deploy the voice, what, what would be the sound of that. And so our first efforts revolved around more traditional approaches where we would take Paul's actual sync track and process it somehow to filter it or make it bigger or deeper or something like that. And what we discovered is that, that all of that felt rather gimmicky and we landed on this idea that we wanted the deployment of the voice, or at least when it's weaponized, to be summoning an ancient ancestor, and in fact, a, a, like a, a tribal leader. And we thought that that would be most effective if it was done with a very commanding woman's voice. Um, Something kind of gravelly and deep. Uh, uh, we were given the wonderful reference, initially just an idea, of Marianne Faithful, who'd been, you know, this... Um, key figure in the 1960s, sort of uh, girlfriend of Mick Jagger and, and a singer in her own right, but who has, you know, spent many decades with this smoky, smoky, crackly voice. And actually, in the end, she was one of three people who we did record and use for this ancient Bene Gesserit voice. Sorry to butt in there. I was just, just remember that Marianne Faithful it's thing. It's an important note. 
Um, also, Gene Gilpin, who is really the key voice that we hear, who is someone who's able to summon up a range of sort of crackly, whispery, ancient voices. And we, we recorded this in Chakobsa, which is the, you know, the Fremen language in a sort of made up Bene Gesserit language in English. And we, and we kind of blended all of these voices together to create what we termed as a witchy cloud or something, you know, just something that we imagine a user is able to summon up. And it's like a whole bunch. You're, you're, you're listening through a, a family tree of, uh, of the Bene Gesserit ancestors. But it was really once we developed that for the voice as a weapon that Denis heard those voices and was like, that's interesting. Could we try recording these lines? And he would come up with, you know, new ideas of what that ancient voice could be saying. And instead of using it simply as a weapon or as an element of that weapon voice, we started to introduce it into Paul's visions. So, yes, those moments um, before you came on, Mark, uh, Jennifer and I were just talking about how, um, how brilliant those scenes are when he's in the sandstorm and you go inside his head and, and you, you, you hear the visions. And, you know, it was moments like that where it seems like the voice in his head is guiding him and that he's channeling some sort of ancient spirit that is giving him hints as to what the future may hold. That was a whole narrative aspect that opened up really once Denis had heard those recordings of an ancient voice. And once again, a great example of why we love to be brought on early in the game so that we are not just involved in a, a sort of post-production glaze of sound, but in some way we're feeding ideas into the editor and the director's work. And they're coming back to us and saying, oh, there's maybe a different way that we could tell this scene. Maybe we can actually get information across in a different way. Right. And that, that visionary voice. It's a testament to the power of the idea because, in fact... Uh, as we developed those voices and recorded and laid them in, Joe uh, would be adjusting the edit accordingly because picture now had to match uh, a sonic narrative idea that we had developed. And so there's this beautiful, and we can talk more about this, um, collaboration that we have with Joe as the picture editor and even visual effects uh, wh where sound is driving um, the timing and the look of things. Yeah. So in addition to recording and editing these other voices to create the voice. Did you do any sort of processing to add a low frequency element or um, to add a different sort of character to these? Or was it just strictly editing? The, I mean, sorry, you're talking about that weaponized voice, especially, right? The, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's like a three part recipe to it, I'd say. Um, part of it is the ancient ancestral voices that we sometimes hear kind of morphing out of the actor's original voice. So you might hear, um, oh, what's the line, Mark, in, in the in the ornithopter that Paul's trying to get right to get his mother released? Is it remove her gag? Um, remove her gag, yeah. Because he knows that if 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 they remove the gag, then he's definitely got someone who can use the voice super effectively. And that's in in the Harkonnens hostage scene where where they've taken Paul and Jessica. You would hear Paul say, remove and. As, as he finishes the word remove, it starts morphing into remove a gag and you get the, the sort of witchy voices coming out. That witchy element to the ancient Bene Gesserit ancestor thing is, is one part of it. The other part is the atmosphere around the characters uh, who use the voice is kind of sucked out of the room. When we have that first experience of it in Paul in the breakfast scene with his mother, kind of saying, come on, you've got to practice the voice. He's, he's saying, give me the water. And you hear all of the atmosphere of the room just sort of disappear. Everything gets quieter. Something shifts. There's like a, there's a change. And that's one of the changes that we feel. It's as if the physics of the room have somehow changed. Um, so that's part of the impact. And then finally, there's a kind of base impact that you feel in your body. Hopefully, if you're in the cinema, you really feel it in your body through the subwoofers. And that was created by 
first of all, pitching down so I have a, you know, a deeper version of the voice, and then something that we call worldizing, where you can play something through a, a speaker and re-record it, and it has an effect on the room. Let's say a bassy thing like that playing through a large subwoofer tends to rattle everything in the room. So we get like a sense that this voice has a physical effect. It rattles the user, it rattles the room, it rattles whichever space they're in. So yeah, a combination of something that gives you a physical impact that you can really feel in your body in the cinema, the ancient voices and the atmospheres disappearing from the room. And then there's this wonderful extra dimension that Joe Walker, uh, our editor, and Denis Villeneuve added really late in the game. They'd have been asking us to figure out a way to, to show how Paul is learning the voice, how he hasn't quite got it. You know, that first time in the breakfast room, he half tricks his mother into passing in the water. But at the end, she's like, almost. In the Harkin and Ornithot uh, hostage scene, the first time he tries it, it doesn't work. And he ends up getting a punch in the chest from one of the Harkonnen captors. The second time, he does get it. And it was that... Like, how do we show a non-proficient use of the voice compared to someone who's an expert like uh, the Reverend Mother? And we tried various things, like just making it, you know, a slightly weaker version, less of the bass, etc. And that kind of worked, but it wasn't until Joe Walker started to really mess around with the timing of everything. He was also messing around with the timing of the cut, so you get a glimpse of what the person is about to do. You get a glimpse of Jessica about to pass the glass of water. You get a glimpse of Paul starting to walk towards the Reverend Mother, even before she has completely commanded him. So it's this kind of messing around with time, both visual and audio. And it was therefore, I think, Joe and Denise's idea that a non-proficient use of the voice, all of those elements that I just went through, the, the bass, the, the ancient voice, the original voice, all of those things are out of sync. So when we first hear Paul try it, he says, give me the water. And before we hear any discernible voice, we hear that bass rumble. And we hear that on his lips speaking the words. Then we cut to Jessica and we hear the ancient voices inside her head. All the elements are there, but they haven't quite synchronized yet. They haven't quite come together. And we realize when we hear the Reverend Mother use the voice on Paul that she, you know, someone who's expert at this, it's all tightly together. It's massively impactful. And it has that sense of you couldn't resist this. So being able to give elements to an editor who's then able to sit with a director and mess around with them and, and slide them around on his timeline was a really important part of discovering the language of how someone gets proficient and how someone gets to use that voice as an um, irresistible weapon. The voices that accompany the, the Bene Gesserit as they show up and they depart, um, like there's that great scene just before Paul's test where they arrive in their spaceship and, and they're coming through the quiet of space and then slowly you hear all these voices as they come closer and they land. Was that score? Yes. Was that just sound design? Yeah, this is score which, I mean, again, by that point, Hans would have heard our witchy clouds of the Bene Gesserit ancestors um, as a reference and... Also some whispering vocal tracks that we had mocked up. So he knew the territory that we were working in sonically for ancient Bene Gesserit, how to, how to summon the idea of Bene Gesserit presence. And that's how he evoked it in his score in those moments where the spaceship is arriving and departing. Yeah. Let's go back to that drum sand scene. So the sandworm emerges, but just before we see him, there's all this great movement of him out in the sand. There's all these like sand avalanches and things like that. How are you able to use sound to express the movement of this giant sandworm in the sand out in front of them? Well, I've been talking too much, Mark. I think you've got you to run with this one. <laughs> well, one of the really lovely collaborations we had with VFX was in this sand movement, we began to see 
Well, first of all, let's just start by saying Theo and I and uh, Charlie Campagna and Eric Basta took a, a really important trip out to the Mojave Desert to capture raw elements. And we took a hike out to the dunes and brought microphones and buried them in the sand and tunneled them underneath the sand to create furrowing and burrowing sounds, as well as bringing mallets and hammers to pound on the sand to bring back some of those raw elements that would become the thumper. Uh, but in terms of the movement, Theo and I had always seen the, there was a metaphor for us, the, the worms were what we thought of as sort of whales of the desert. You know, they travel through sand as gracefully as, as a whale can through water. And we started to see that idea develop visually as shots would come in and we'd see that kind of furrowing sand as the worm uh, came close. And we began to experiment not only with the sand sounds that we had recorded, but with, in fact, ocean waves and wave crashing and surf sounds because they mimicked that motion. And it, we would find out much later, without an actual discussion, that these were some of the models that, that VFX were using to develop that rippling sand as if it was like a tsunami uh, coming towards you of sand. We found that we could actually insert sounds of actual surf to sweeten the designed sand sounds that we had been making to kind of blend those two concepts together. And it was very successful. I love the fact that, you know, we'd always talked amongst each other and gone, how exactly is that sandworm going to tunnel along through the sand? I mean, what's it using to push the sand aside? It's not furrowing, it's not burrowing. And then it's like, well, of course, you know, Paul Lambert um, and his team in the desert had buried vibrating plates underneath the sand and shot these amazing images with Greg Fraser, the cinematographer, to capture that look of sand when it liquefies and it sort of bubbles and, you know, little pits appear in it. And it's like, oh, of course, it vibrates. It vibrates as it moves along. And there's this whole theme throughout the movie, throughout the sound that we designed of, of vibration whether it's the vibration of the shields and the, that's the reason you can't use them in the desert because it attracts the worms. But this, this thing that the, the sandworms move by vibration and that's why the sand liquefies and becomes like water, that gave us a whole new dimension to play with in the sound. It just helped us understand how this thing is moving. And there was this, you know, from the book of Dune, which describes worm sign as, a, as an audible sound that you, you hear when a, when a worm is close. And Denis had always described to us, this is something which I want to hear. It would catch you by surprise. You're in the desert and you hear something and you think, is that a tiny insect fluttering? And it was when we were really looking at those shots of the sand fluttering that we realized that's something that we can develop as a sign that the worm is close. We can't see it. The, the sand dunes aren't exactly moving yet, but we hear like... And this is this wonderful motif that we come back to also in the vision that Paul has when he's in the middle of the sandstorm in the escape ornithopter. You have this wonderful speech going on about the shifting sands and these images of the sands kind of liquefying. And there's this wonderful kind of um, metaphor that he then sort of takes as his guidance of how to navigate the sandstorm. We had these wonderful interactions, I guess, between the work of the VFX team and what we were doing. In that particular case, we saw what they did and it cued us in for what we needed to do for the sound. In some other cases, we cued them in for what the rhythm of their VFX should be, like on the shield, for instance. Um, you know, we, we would make a sound and then they would start to animate to it. Again, another example of the wonders of being on early and getting proper collaboration going between all of these departments that are traditionally working separately much later in the game. Joe, yesterday, Theo, uh, brought up something that I was unaware of but had always had a sixth sense about 
that though uh, our coming on as early as we do to do all this design work and work in collaboration with he and, and VFX, whereas uh, an accountant might look at that and say, well, we just don't spend money like that. It's post-production is post-production. Joe noticed <clears throat> that in certain cases, the cost of extending a shot could be in the, the neighborhood of hundreds of thousands of dollars because the director determines I want this shot to last this long. But when sound is applied to that shot, all of a sudden you begin to realize that maybe the shot doesn't need to be quite as long as you thought it did and hence maybe not quite as expensive. And now there's, there's an economy to yes. predicting the way a shot should look and sound by beginning that process very early, and perhaps it might even save you money. I love it. Just one more reason to get sound involved early. Convince the accounting team that this is no, this is really an economical We're saving idea. you money. No, yeah. That's, yeah, that's true. So let's go back to the body armor tech sound, because there's that huge fight between House Atreides and the Sardaukar, and they're all wearing that body armor tech. Uh, it's a huge moment for sound and for the VFX as well. So how did you guys work together on that scene? We, we'd sort of developed the sound of the shield around the training scene of Paul and Gurney at the beginning. And then once we had finally arrived at something that Denis loved, uh, for the sound of the, of, of the shield as a basic way of avoiding the typical force field shield, which Mark and I had always wanted to avoid, you know, the trope of a kind of, humming kind of you know, like a humming sort of constant presence around a person. And instead we'd found something that, that had more of a shape, something that vibrated and glitched and crackled when it's under stress, when it's under a, 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 attack. a, a yeah, when it's under attack and when it's under strain. Um, and then we started to take those sounds and um, apply them to the other moments where the shields are being used. There's a moment even when a whole ship is shielded by this technology and it's got these sort of twisting bombs coming, dropping on it and making the shield explode. That's a very different use of it. It has a few elements of the shield that you hear in the training. And then there's that scene on the steps that you reference where everyone is shielded. Everyone is, there's swords, there's people getting killed, there's shields being penetrated. And instead of just being an occasional firing of the shield, it's it's going off all the time. It's it's mayhem. So, you know, we added a few extra sort of ripping and slicing sounds in there just to, to add to the, the chaos of it all. But again, we have this wonderful interaction with what the VFX are doing. The shield was developed really when we'd just seen a few frames of the training shield scene. We'd come up with that sound that gave a kind of click, 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 kind of a vibration, as it were. VFX had then gone away and developed their animation of the shield based on the sound that we'd made. And that's one of the reasons that that works so tightly. But in a moment like that, where swords are penetrating the shield left, right and center, something really helps, I think, which is that they develop this language, visual language of when the shield has been penetrated, it flashes red. It's not a movie where we see blood, really. It's, you know, it's um, not a gory movie. However, we need to know that someone has just um, had the shield penetrated by a slow blade and that they're dying or whatever. So... Yeah, in that moment, I think there's this wonderful thing of, you know, we're telling the story of the shields kind of all crackling and straining under all of the swords that are, that are flying around. But VFX have found this way of describing the difference between a shield repelling a blow and failing and, and a sword entering the shield. And so what was the base sound of that body armor? What went into that? That was, it started off with um, 
So there's this technique we use quite a lot called granular synthesis, where you basically load in a real sound that we've recorded into a synthesizer, and then it's able to split it up into tiny little particles. It's kind of the sound version of VFX particle engine, something where you're able to shatter a sound into thousands of particles and then still have some kind of control over how the cloud of particles is born and how long the particles last, etc. We'd been messing around with, with different ideas and something that I'd tried putting in this granular synthesizer was uh, the sound of a machine gun firing. I'd been messing around with it. Denis had liked but wasn't completely sold on an early version of that where it was more like a cat purr. It was kind of when the shield interacted, it was soft. And he liked the basic idea, but it was like it needs to have bite, it needs to sound dangerous, it needs to sound like a technology that's on the verge of failure because these things are, are not a perfect device. It's vulnerable and we need to understand that. Messing around on the settings of the synthesizer led to like an error, basically. When you do it wrong, you get all this sort of shower of little clicks. Effectively, the things that we'd normally spend time trying to delete from audio. Suddenly, we were faced with hundreds of these little clicks, like a like an electrical particle storm or something. So Denis heard that and was very happy that it had the right kind of bite and danger to it. So it came about via an accident. Thankfully, Denis is so receptive to our ideas, even when they're a little bit offbeat. He never makes us feel silly for presenting something that's wrong. A couple of times we played him a sound and his response has been, I like it, it's not right for this scene, maybe we can try this somewhere else. I love that response rather than just, oh, no, 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 don't play me that kind of thing again. You know, it's like you might hear from some directors. Um, he's very into his repurposing and recycling rather than just writing something off. So we feel, as a result, quite encouraged to... Sometimes we start with, you know, maybe this is a bad idea, but have a listen. And as a result, we try some things that are quite experimental. In that case, I was like, this is actually technically an error, but <laughs> have a listen and see if you like it. And he did, luckily. So that was the genesis of the shield sound. And then, of course, a lot of work went into the detailing, the editing of those particles and figuring out exactly where they happen. Um, but yes, using, uh, using an error to, uh, to our advantage. I love any sort of sound that has movement and modulation to it. And I really loved what you did for the hunter seeker bug that comes to attack Paul. The sound that you created just matches the VFX so well, and it felt like the sound was actually emanating from that bug. Can you tell me about your work on that? Yeah, that's that's lucky. We, I mean, um, that's also a lot of the wonderful talents of Doug Hemphill, our effects mixer, who's able to really... Um, sometimes we make a sound that doesn't fully pinpoint itself on the screen. And when you've got such a tiny thing as that little Hunter Seeker device, um, having someone help us mix it so that it's it really pinpoints it on the screen and there's a moment where it flies suddenly across the screen and he's able to sort of pan it and move it throughout space in a, in a very convincing way. Um, that really helps sell the sound. The sound itself we were thinking of was it's you know it's like a mosquito and and when you, when you're trying to catch the mosquito that's just gone into your room the the most frustrating and potentially scariest part is when it goes quiet it's the moment where it stops moving you're like where the where did the damn thing go um so we actually um, asked um, Mary Lukashevich, who is Joe Walker's first assistant editor, to give us a, a rough guide by singing uh, a mosquito. <laughs> it was like, could you, could you perform, you know, a kind of mosquito song? Just like, and she does this brilliant high pitch to the mosquito, which we then pitched even higher. That let us play around with a very sort of basic first iteration of how this mosquito is going to sort of fly and then disappear and then start up again and Paul kind of loses it where it is in the room. 
and then we added some nasty little elements when it first appears it burns its way through a hole in in a tapestry and its legs come out you realize it's got these horrible spiked sort of legs that are presumably full of some poison i remember putting some knife movements in there and just sort of filtering them so they sounded extremely tiny and i love also the moment where paul finally grabs it and holds it in his hand and there's this little sort of nasty bug crackling that is you know <laughs> electric short circuiting in his hand yeah that was a really fun scene and um beautifully shot i think again we get to play with that thing of it appearing and disappearing in the space partly because of the way that denis has has had his dp greg fraser shot paul kind of hiding in what was a practical effect of you know the lighting of of this film book which he's been watching he's looking at a saguaro bush i think it's called this sort of hologram and the light is playing on his face and that's helping him evade the eyes of this little hunter seeker so often the case the practical effects that denny works with you know is showing the usual cg tricks and green screen stuff and the early iterations of vfx that are built by paul lambert that we're able to look at and get an, an idea of where this hunter seeker is going to be Actually, I remember even before we had a VFX for that, we had Joe Walker putting the words Hunter Seeker. We had like a little flying text saying Hunter <laughs> Seeker on the screen. Um, but so much of those, you know, the visuals of the the light on Paul's face and stuff are, are, are in-camera effects. So we often get a very good atmospheric take of what the scene's going to be like even before the very final details are completed. And that helps us so much. I, I don't know how we would have done this film if it had been, you know, the usual method of everything is CGD and everything is uh, green screen. It would have been so much harder to, you know, cue in our ideas. So let's move on to some of the bigger sounding objects in the film. What about the spice harvester? What went into the sound of creating that? Well, it's, it's an amalgam of, I think, five or six layers. But Theo, I believe that is essentially something you had made in Budapest early on that we just really liked and kept through till the final mix. I, I don't remember adding anything in particular to it. Um, why don't you talk about what those elements are? Yeah, I mean, it was just um, the idea of making something that sounded like the hugest factory ever. I edited a lot of sounds of industrial processes, try to imagine the the thing isn't just crawling for spice, but it's kind of sifting the spice, it's, it's separating the spice, it's kind of purifying, it's like a huge factory on wheels. It's really just a, a pile of industrial <laughs> sounds. And then some of the, the harder stuff was when it starts to get eaten by, by the worm. We see a couple of shots where the worm has come up from underneath the sand crawler and it's just crushing this gigantic factory of metal. And I think, Mark, you did layer in some stuff. I don't know whether it was that one which you were sort of sucking on a microphone to get the sound of like... You know, something yeah. just being... Um, and uh, I think... I think the dishwasher at Warner Brothers. Yes, the, the dishwasher creak <laughs> is in there there's, as well. There's a fantastically creaky door on the dishwasher in the Warner Brothers um, mixing room. And I think a final element that we put in there as it's being crushed was a slowed down version of that door closing just this, what we would call a ronk, you know, a, a great big crunchy metal sound. <laughs> um, yeah. 
that's um, that was basically it. I mean, there is some nice detailing that I think um, sells the idea of the machinery winding down when the ornithopters come in to rescue it. Again, they'd had a practical effect out there in the desert. It wasn't the entire sand crawler that we see, mm. but they had built like a large, I don't know what they call these things, like a big flat poster erected in the desert of the sand crawler's treads. And that's one of the ways that Paul Lambert works with his VFX a lot of the time. I think they have something real in the place of something that's going to be expanded in the VFX just so that, A, the actors have something to play against, B, you know, the lighting is, is right, the shadows are right. And that's the thing that we get closest to. So that's the part where I really kind of put, yes, tank treads and try to build a whole sequence of something sort of rhythmic and industrial. But yeah, I love to think of Mark um, inhaling a microphone as a really key element of that sand crawler disappearing into the sand. That was, that was a moment I spent by myself with no one watching. <laughs> Did the microphone recover? <laughs> yeah. And what about the sandworm's other sounds? It stops just before it's about to eat Paul and it opens its mouth and there are these great bristly sounds and this groaning sound and this mm. deep pulsing sound. What went into that? Yeah, we the the deep pulsing. I presume that, that that's you're referring to its only vocalization. Yeah, we call it the gunk gunk. <laughs> gunk, gunk, gunk. Yeah. That's what it, that's sort of the automatopoeia version of of what it's done. And and um, credit to Dave Whitehead who masterfully found that sound very early in our process. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, making monster and creature sounds is is one of the great challenges in sound design and we all struggle to top each other and and find some new way in to make something no one's ever heard before um and you know admittedly uh, theo and i our first blush responses were sadly a, a little to be expected we went for the sort of monster vibe and as the worm breaches we had created some early kind of monstery scream roars and Denis was very quick to point out that, that that was not this moment. I mean, and we did not have the VFX. I think we were still working to storyboards at that point. Uh, and that this was not a, a moment of terror. This was meant to be a moment of reverence for one of the great creatures of the planet. And we, so we went back to the drawing board and Dave came back with these um, gunk gunks, as we call them, that uh, he said started life as some kind of whale origin sounds that he uh, heavily processed. Uh, what, was, what was really lovely about those sounds is that there's this beautiful sort of symbiosis between the gunk gunk gunks in that rhythm and the thump thump thumps of the thumper. And it, it, it sort of asks an interesting a zoological question of which came first, the worm vocalizations and the thumper mimics it or, or vice versa. Um, and yeah, it's like the the Fremen are using uh, a similar sound to the to the worm's gunk gunk as a way of uh, luring, making it come. It's it's the fish on the hook. We were definitely guided by Denis to keep the sounds of the interior of the worm as dry as possible. It's like this is the driest creature on the driest planet ever. Some of our early versions had had sort of slightly more gurgly, you know, mm. wet interiors, and that was definitely. Again, as the VFX started to develop and we could see the sand falling out of its whale-like baleen teeth, we started to concentrate more on things like that. Like, as it opens up, it's the driest sounds. It's the wind whistling through those baleen teeth. It's the sand falling out of the teeth. And then 
um, it was finding a sound like that gunk gunk that feels like it's coming from within a long tube and yet at the same time doesn't have anything kind of gross and gurgly about it. You know, that's also another lovely moment of collaboration with VFX because that gunk gunk sound came about when we were still in a storyboard phase and Denis so liked that as the sound that that went to VFX and they animated directly to that that master sound. And if you, if, I don't know if you remember in the shot, maybe you had to avert your gaze, but there's a some kind of glottal sphincter that is actually being animated. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sorry to use that kind of language. Don't say sphincter. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and that was animated to match the, the, the modulation of the sound. That's so cool. So I just have one more question for you guys. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, in terms of your sound work on Dune, what are you most proud of? I'm going to pick something that I, I hadn't thought of being proud of it, but it was a, a mix of Doug Hemphill who said that he really liked it. And um, so I'm going to take his choice of something that was the very first scene that I, I worked on and that I remember sending to Mark from Budapest, where I sort of started a, a little bit early. And that is Paul fighting Jarmus at the end. I'm not a fan of most sort of movie fight sounds, and I'd really try to make that feel as naturalistic as possible because it's not a, a victorious fight at all. It's it's Paul's heart is hurting for having to kill someone that he's he's seen in his visions as someone who could have been his great friend, and um, it's it's actually like a tragic fight. So I I played that extremely you know underplayed for the way that a, a fight would normally happen in a movie. And um, it was Doug who says that he thinks that that was a very naturalistic and believable fight. So even though it's not really sound designing, mm. it's kind of a, a simple thing in a way. I'm very happy to have that response from our mixer, Doug. I would, for me, it's, it's the ornithopters, um, which I took a great deal of pride in. Dave Whitehead and I developed the sounds for the ornithopters. And uh, having gone into the film worrying about what were these going to sound like and how do we ensure that the aficionados in the audience don't think we just processed a helicopter? Um, it was how do we make this fantastical um, object come to life in a believable way so that you felt as though it actually was flying by flapping four wings and those four wings were driven by some kind of unknown uh, propulsion mechanism and all the, 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 I think I'm really proud because I've, I've gotten good feedback uh, from, <clears throat> from sound aficionados that they really bought that, that it felt like a, a unique thing unto itself and that it didn't sound like anything else. Yeah, it feels like we're both the happiest with the things that came across as the most realistic. I mean, yeah. uh, and perhaps that's things where it's something where we can relate to it and we believe that that's something that, that's similar to something that we've heard in our own world. And whilst we're also really proud of the more outlandish aspects and the, the voice and the shields and all of these things, I think we feel the most happy when we've sold something as being completely real. That's... In fact, if, if there was a philosophical success for Theo and I, I think it's, it's feeling like we found a way to, a, a fresh and new way to define the sound of science fiction. And the, the word that comes to mind is we made science fiction familiar. And that, that stems from an early mandate from Denis to make everything in this film feel believable and relatable. And I think I, I want to believe, I'll, I'll wait to hear from you, Jennifer, and our peers, that, that we succeeded in making a, a very approachable science fiction soundtrack that is not replete with fantastical, you know, 
the, 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 the cliche is the theremin that do you know we, we we I think we successfully avoided that kind of science fiction. Yes, you did indeed, and I'm so glad that you brought up the ornithopters because that was on my list of questions to ask that I just wasn't able to get to today. So thank you, Theo, and thank you, Mark. Thank you guys so much for sharing your time and your story with me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure, Jennifer. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really, really yeah. fun. That's it for this episode. A big thanks to Jennifer Walden for doing the interviews and to Mark Mangini and Theo Green for being on the show. Looking for more audio podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Be sure to subscribe to the Sound Effect Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening and see you next time. Take care. Take care.